It's good to see everybody. Welcome. We're going to be in Romans 5 tonight. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. As I've been uh, working on these passages in Romans, I can uh, joyfully say that they have been working on me and really thankful for that. I think we would agree that as a culture we have lost our understanding of the holiness of God. And um, Jason's sermon was helpful um, to that end and thinking about that for me. And as such, because we have lost sight of God's holiness, that we've also lost sight of the seriousness of our sin. We have also, therefore, lost sight of the reality of God's justice. A loving God must do something about evil. And we've lost sight of God's wrath. That is how he handles evil. But we've also, because of those things, we've lost sight of the goodness of redemption. How good the redemptive story is. These are not just important topics. They're foundational So when Jason taught a few weeks ago, he said this, the interesting part is that both love and wrath are true characteristics of God. And they talked a little bit about how difficult this topic is and how little we deal with it as a culture. But it's so important. Because to the degree we understand God's wrath, we will rejoice when we realize we're not getting it. Little understanding of God's wrath Little rejoicing when you realize you've been released from it. But he goes on to say that both love and wrath are true characteristics of God. God is love and God is also wrath. In fact, God is perfectly love and perfectly wrath. And if we say that God is love and leave out his wrath, or if we say that God is wrath and leave out his love, we have an incomplete understanding of who God is. But church family, let's not just say that our culture has lost sight, that they have distanced themselves from the holiness of God, His wrath, His justice, and His love. Let's not just say that the culture needs the gospel, or that non-believers need saving, but that we do. Let me ask us a probing question. I'm going to ask us a couple of these during the course of our time together tonight. But let us, let's consider this question to help us dissect our own need for the gospel. What have you given more of your attention to this week? Your offenses against God or God's offenses or people's offenses against you? Maybe you had a good week. Maybe you could say, well, I've really been absorbing. But think about the last month. 
What do we tend to give time to? Our offenses against God, or do we give more time and energy of people's offenses against me? So I'm going to argue that we're far more comfortable with us offending God than we are with people offending us. We make a much bigger deal about people's offenses towards us than we make about our offenses towards God. True? Church, you know what that means? It means we need the gospel of Christ. It means we have lost sight of His holiness and what we have gained by avoiding His wrath because of Christ. It's not just out there. We, we need desperately to understand what the gospel is. That we've been saved from God's wrath by His, by God's kindness. We've talked a lot about the gospel. We're talking about this at home. Just so that we're all remembering, we hear this word, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. I just want to remind us what it is, what we're talking about. I think the best, one of the best definitions Paul gave us in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. And he says this, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the gospel. That we have righteousness counted to us who believe in Him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. That's the gospel. So in your Bible, if you're having trouble, what's the gospel? The gospel, right next in chapter 3, verse 25, verse 24 and 25, right right there, a little bracket and put gospel. That's what it means. See, the law tells us we're in danger of judgment. But faith, it's all it can do. But faith in the promises of God's gospel tells us we are justified. God's holiness demands. It's not like he's standing there saying, I'm demanding it. His holiness requires, the nature of his holiness requires the execution of sin. But God's grace credits his own righteousness to us by faith. Or Paul says that he is both just and the justifier. Remember? Gentile, Jew, or pagan, religious. The answer is the same. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received 
by faith. And church, family, when we believe that, it has to change everything. The emphasis on has to isn't on us, by the way. I'm saying by the very power of what it is, it has to change. You with me on that distinction? I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying by the nature of the power of the gospel of Christ, when we believe it, it does something. It's a given. It changes everything. So this is the thesis or the big idea. So if you walk out of here and somebody says, what was the sermon about? You're going to say, the gospel changes everything. And so as we prepare to look at Romans 5 today, we're going to back up into the end of chapter 4 and finish that out. And then it's going to launch us into chapter 5. If you've noticed, we've been doing that the last week. And then we're going to, we're doing it this week, and then we're going to do the same thing next week in the chapter six. We're going to back up, we're going to further flesh out five and head into six. Because these, these things are tied together. And I found it clunky and broken up if we're looking at these things independently, but we can't. Because what, what is in five is a complete and other rejoicing. It's a celebration of what results from this reality that we have been justified because of Christ's work. It's a complete and utter, yippee! This therefore in chapter 5 verse 1 is packed with enthusiasm and cheering. It's one of those little things you used to go, and the fireworks come out. That's the therefore in chapter 5 verse 1. But we want to pick up what's happening at the end of 4 so that we can get the full power of 5-1, okay? So fourth, three things that we're going to see that happen at the end of chapter 4 that are going to help us to celebrate what we need to be in chapter 5. The first thing is Paul brings his thoughts to Abraham to a conclusion. He's kind of going to give us some concluding thoughts. I'm, I'm telling you all this about Abraham to say this. So he's going to conclude his thoughts. And then the second thing he's going to do is he's going to flesh out. He's been telling us Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. And he's been telling us and telling us. And then he's going to flesh out how his faith worked in real time. In other words, he's going to give us, he gave us Abraham as a specific, as a specific example of faith that brings about justification, and now he's going to bring about a specific example from Abraham's life that shows what it, what that belief looked like in real time. And then the third thing he's going to do is then he's going to turn that all that on us, his readers, and say, and this applies to you, and here's how. Okay, you ready? I'm excited. So we're going to jump in. So he brings up this conclusion of Abraham's life. So chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he says that is why it depends on faith. He's saying the law can only bring about wrath. That's all it can do. It can only show you its sin. So because the law is completely enabled to bring about salvation, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may may rest on grace and be guaranteed 
See, if, if, if the promise was based on the law, it can't be guaranteed. Because you're always, it's always waiting. It's always waiting for you to fail and then the promise is nullified because where is the opus? Where's the, where's the weight of the promise? It's on us to do what we're supposed to do. That's the law. But because it's not based on the law, it can be guaranteed. It's a guarantee. It's not about what we do. Hello, that's, that's really helpful. It may be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of his all. Remember, he's bringing this all to a conclusion. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the power of God. Faith. You'd be like, that's all it takes is faith? No, faith and God's power, which brings things out of nothing and makes dead things live. So it takes your faith in the power of God. But it's guaranteed and it rests on grace because it belongs to him. So combined with verses 15... The conclusion is this, the law can only bring death. Therefore, any possibility for God's promise to be fulfilled, it must rest on grace. And that promise comes to us by faith in what God has said. Making all who believe the same things that Abraham believed, Abraham's children By faith. And the God that we believe in. That we have faith in. Gives life to dead things. And creates everything out of nothing. So now continuing, Paul explains. Now here's how that worked out specifically in Abraham's life. So. Now we're in verses 18 18 through 22 of chapter 4. This is Abraham's real-time faith in action. Verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Lord, run these truths deep into our overly familiar hearts, please. Thank you for this great, wonderful, amazing news. And your kindness to us. 
in Christ. The Bible says that in hope he believed against hope. We've all heard the phrase, hope is running out. Or even more definitive, all hope was lost. True? That's the reality of Abraham's circumstances. And not only his circumstances, but also his understanding and his mindset. Says that Abraham's body was as good as dead. I don't want to get too descriptive here, but that means that physically Abraham's body wasn't doing what it needed to do to make babies. And Abraham, it says, considered that. But also, despite years of praying, and trying, and even conniving and manipulating, Sarah has never had a baby. Never. And Genesis nineteen eighteen says that she was worn out. That means she was past menopause. If you're little and you don't know what that means, your parents have hopefully explained to you, that mommies produce little eggs in their body. Well, after menopause, their mommies' bodies don't produce those little eggs anymore. So after this physical, tangible thing happened to her body, and women know when it happens, that had happened to her. Her body's no longer producing the things necessary to make a baby. And Abraham considered that. All hope was lost. All tangible realities were flowing this way. Like that was his experience. It wasn't just he was thinking about it. These were physical, tangible things. They're going, that's not working. All hope was flowing this way, and yet God made a promise to Abraham. So even though his previous his experiences, his present realities, his considerations were torridly like a heavy river flowing this direction, Abraham believed against that flow in the other direction because, God, you said. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised to do. In hope, he believed against that hope. I've told you before in previous sermons and a few but uh, haven't been here, you'll hear it again. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to swim in mountain streams, in mountain rivers. I love it. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of things about it. Well, we were, when Mary and I lived in the Dominican Republic, there was this valley that you had to hike to. It was spectacular. And there was a river there that flowed so 
clear and pure. I remember one time, and some of you have experienced this. I was up this deep in a river, and I'm I'm pushing against I'm pushing against the flow of the river, and just feeling that my my strengthening in it, and the water flowing over me, and just the ability to move through the water and pushing against it. It was invigorating and refreshing. That was Abraham. He's pushing against the flow of all hope going this way, and he's believing this way because God had said. And it was his physical, tangible, experiential reality, church. We need to get this. This isn't a little Bible character on a flannel graph. Okay? This is you believing that my life can't be that way. My circumstances aren't that way. My growing up wasn't that way. My marriage isn't this way. My kids aren't that way. It's not true. It may be true. It's all flow in that direction. But God has said, and we believe against hope, Abraham chose not to be overcome by the flow of his circumstances, his previous experiences, his emotions, and his ability to make cognitive sense of the situation. I want to offer to you also, Abraham did not have a Bible. Moses doesn't come to write the Pentateuch till years after. Abraham's knowledge of God was extremely limited. What the heck are you doing? Circumcision, babies, leaving, going, coming. His, I'm telling you, his circumstances for unbelief trump anybody's in the room. You, we have zero excuse. So verse 19 says, he considered these things. He considers his body and he considers Sarah's body. He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't your country bumpkin going, okay, I believe God anyway. No, he considered church. That's why he says it twice. The Bible says when he considered, no unbelief made him waver. That word waver actually means to stand in judgment. So none, no unbelief made Abraham stand in judgment. Let me restate it this way. Abraham chose not to allow the, the considerations coming to his mind to be the filter by which he listened to and saw God's promise. He refused to stand in judgment with his own little tiny bitty reasoning over God's promises. He said, I'm not going to do it. But he considered it. Despite everything, Abraham refused to hold court on God's promises. Let me pause and ask us another probing question. How often do you hold court on God's promises? This is why 
God's word works this way and not this way. Because I can tell you, I have held court on God's promises far too many times. How often do you bring your evidence to bear on, on why and how God's promises are insufficient for your following? Oh, for this reason and for that reason and for this reason, that, that, that won't work for me. How often are you holding court on God's promises. Abraham chose to view his circumstances, his reality, his emotions, and his previous experiences through the promises of God. Not to look at God's promises through his circumstances, his reality, his emotions, his experiences. Let me give you a hint here too. That brings peace. We're going to see this in Romans 5. Our ability to trust God's promises over our truth brings us peace. Are you with me? You start holding court on God's promises. Don't we know this by experience? We start holding court on God's promises. Where does peace go? I don't know, but it's pretty far. Yeah? Verse 20 says, Rather, rather than holding court on God's promises, he grew stronger in his faith as he gave Glory to God. In other words, he grew stronger as he pushed against the flow. Hey, are you catching this visual? He's pushing against the flow of his emotions, his experiences, all these considerations up in his mind. He's pushing against them and saying, no, I'm going to believe. God said He's going to do it. I'm going to believe. What's he doing? He's getting stronger in his faith. Church, I'm not suggesting this is easy. But I am saying that God's word says it functions. It's the way it works. He grew stronger as he pushed against the flow. But more than him growing stronger, it's not about us. He gave glory to God. What does that mean? Does it mean he's singing? Oh, glory. You know, skipping? Some people are like, please, Rob, don't ever do that again. (laughs) What does it mean that he gave God glory and how did it strengthen his faith? One definition of glory means to give glory. Wait. Abraham gave great weight to what God had said. He gave him glory. Abraham considered 
God's thoughts weightier, more dense than his own thoughts. Ooh, that should do something to you. Abraham gave like this. Your words are weightier. We give glory. We give weight to God when we say, my mind is thinking this. You say this and I'm giving it to you. This is glory. So many times we hear, give God glory, give God glory. This is a very tangible, you can do this heading home tonight, because it's going to happen. Maybe tomorrow, if you're really sanctified, right? But the tension to, I've going to believe my way, and it usually works like this. Man, I hope so-and-so really heard that sermon. And then we start hinting, that, hoping that they heard the sermon. And then we, then our flesh... That's your opportunity right there. Because it's not about them. It's about you. Giving weight to what God has said for you. And Abraham gave greater weight to God's thoughts rather than his own. And that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. It's very practical. Let me say this again, and I'm going to say it in the opposite. I have found it true in my life that when I am struggling in my faith, it is because I am giving more weight to my own thoughts than God's weight, than God's thoughts. True? When I'm studying, I'm realizing, I'm thinking back last month, three months, Last year, thinking of instances in my life where I really deeply struggled with my faith. Man, I'm telling you, I was all blocked up with my own thoughts and my own reality. And True? When I am giving more weight to my own reality than I am giving to God's, I will always struggle with my faith. So in other words, when we give greater weight to what God says over our circumstances, our emotions, our understanding, our previous experiences, we give him glory. And the direct result of that is we grow stronger in our faith. We're pushing against the tide and it causes us to be strengthened. So here's the direct application for us. Chapter 3, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is for us. These words are not just for Abraham, Romans. This is for you. These words are not just for the Romans, vine and branch. They're for you, for me. It will be counted to us who believe. Now Paul includes himself. It will be counted for to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. These things are written for us, church family. Righteousness is counted to us who believe in God, who raised Jesus from the dead. 
and who delivered us up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the good news that we believe. And it not only has long-term ramifications on where we'll spend eternity and we're waiting for God's glory to be revealed, it no longer has, it, it not just has long-term ramifications, but present-day realities. Paul is working up by this time we should be celebrating the truth of the gospel and have this desire to give God weight by believing his truth over ours. We should be right there and now we get to we get to Romans chapter 5 and here it comes right here comes the explosion. Therefore Since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, because all these things are true, and we see them in Abraham's life, now I've showed you how it works out specifically, and I'm telling you it's not just written for him, but for you too. Therefore, because that's all true, since we've been justified by faith, because we possess the same type of belief that Abraham possesses, everything changes and then Romans 5 lays out these six I don't know what word to choose guarantees these changes these realities I'm going to run through them real quick and then we're going to back up and revisit these but Here's the first thing in chapter 5, verse 1. Here's, the, here's one of the main results, the benefits of the gospel. We possess peace with God. You know, if you've ever watched those silly Miss American pageants, I don't watch them anymore, right? But when I was a kid, I remember them being on TV. My mom always liked that stuff. I'm kidding. But we did watch it. And, you know, they asked Miss America, well, what would you want to give the world? I'd want to give the world peace. There's There's always this deep desire for peace. Peace comes by being reconciled to God. Peace comes in submitting to God's truth over your truth. Big T truth, He's redeeming us. Christ died for us, the gospel story, but also in submitting to everyday truth, we, we gain peace with God. Paul says this explosive reality, because since we have been justified by faith, because that's true, we have peace with God. It's what everybody's looking for, true, is peace. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to his truth. And when we give that weight, giving him glory over ourselves, we possess peace with God. And Paul tells us that the second result is that we stand in grace. Not our works, 
not our performance. We stand up in grace. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Since we have been justified by faith, we stand in grace. And because we have peace with God and we're standing in grace, it's not about our performance, it's not about our work. We rejoice in our future. The end of 5.2 says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's talking about the glory that's coming. When God's glory is fully revealed, we rejoice in this. Why? Because we're justified because we have peace with Him, and because we're standing in grace. So my future is guaranteed, like we talked about. And not only is it true that we rejoice in our future, but Paul also says, the Bible says, that we rejoice in our present sufferings. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, verse 3. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Look, suffering is the most disturbing reality in our world. I was watching some videos of Christopher Hitchens this week. If you don't know who Christopher Hitchens is, he's, he's recently passed away, I don't know, the last couple of years. But he's one of the most renowned atheists, and he's always arguing against God. But one of the things he always goes to, I watched, I think, three of his talks, little bits and pieces, one in full. The thing he always goes to in order to defend his atheism vehemently is suffering. It is the universal difficulty. And I believe what Paul is saying here is not just, ooh, you have power to get through. What he's saying is, the gospel reality has power over the thing that takes everybody out, and it's human suffering. And the gospel supersedes suffering. Because... We have peace with God because we're standing in grace. Our future is absolutely secured. It's guaranteed. Sufferings do not alter our final outcome. And a matter of fact, the only thing they can do in this present life is to actually make you better. They can only, because of God's kindness, they can only do good unto you. That's why we read Romans 8, 20, 31 through 39 at the beginning. What shall separate us from God's love? Tribulation? Hardship? Persecution? No, nothing. You are standing in grace. You have peace with God. It is based on His abilities, not yours. Suffering can touch, cannot touch the love of God. 
believe that's very clear because then he goes on to say um, in verse 5 through 5, 5, 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We need to understand that it's like, I haven't felt the Lord pouring his, you know, pouring his love into me through the Holy Spirit. This isn't a th- feeling thing, by the way. I waited for this for years. Okay, it's not a feeling thing. It's a reality thing. You have the Holy Spirit in you. God has poured his love into you. It's a spoken reality. It's true. You don't have to feel it. It's just there. You have the Holy Spirit. If you've been justified by faith in Christ, God has poured His love into you by giving you the Holy Spirit. What I love is this river picture of moving through, enduring while the torrent is going this way. And while we're shuffling through and choosing to believe, you know what that develops? Character. It makes us different. It literally, by believing God when everything is flowing this way, it literally changes us and makes us different. His love has been poured out into our hearts. He gives us the ability through the Spirit, which we do not have on our own, to endure and to remember that we have peace with Him. We stand in grace. And because of that, we end in verse 11 of chapter 5. Let me back up to verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled Listen to this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. Wait a minute. More than that? He just described the gospel and what it does to us. And then he says, more than that. More? There's more, more than that. We also rejoice in God. Hey, newsflash, our salvation isn't about us. We are not the end. It's about him. And all of this stuff, and we rejoice in God more, more than that. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul moves through Abraham's life. He concludes, he shows us 
how it specifically worked out. Then he makes direct application for us. And then he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have six very true results that we can count on. And a matter of fact, he says, in a sense, here's what you can believe. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's six things for you to believe. You have peace with God. You stand in grace. You have a future that's guaranteed. Even sufferings can't take that from you. God has poured his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in him. These are the things we get to believe, church, in faith. And it changes us. And when the torrent of our experiences and our circumstances and all that's blown against us, and we say, no, I'm going to choose to listen to and believe God, we gain character. And character, combined with believing, grows our hope. So here's the application for us. Some things for us to consider. Give God weight. Don't look at God's promises through the lens of your circumstances your, your, your emotions, your reality, and your previous experiences. I'd, I'd encourage you to take a minute right now. And maybe, maybe this is burning on the forefront of your mind. If not, probably won't take long to think about it. What are ways you are right now not believing what God has said? What are some ways that you're like, I'm, I'm just not believing things that are true? I want to encourage you not to let that question get away without you putting pen to paper about that. Give his promises and his word and his truth weight. The second thing, recall the benefits of believing. Meditate on, on five, chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Lord, these are the things you've given us to believe. And ask yourself, what does it mean for me to believe? For you, put your name. For me to believe that I stand in grace. That I possess peace. Work it, work it through. Believe these things. These are ours to believe God's promises over our own Meditate in a hundred different ways until your heart gets hot about how Christ's righteousness has been credited to you and what that does for your life. See, what we need, church, is faith in God's promises, not the law. What we need is not a self-improvement project, but faith in the gospel. Let me prove this to you. Since before we left Peru, I have been really struggling with my sermon preparation. And I've asked for prayer, some of you individually, and then also I think a couple times publicly. I, don't, I didn't know what it was. I took two books on preaching with me to Peru to read because I'm like, something's wrong. I'm not missing it. 
It was taking me an inordinate amount of hours to get my thoughts together. I was taking up way too long to put sermons together. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And so I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm, and so I, I'm, I got my tools, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a book. I'm cranking on this baby. And it, it's not, I, I'm not gaining traction. So again, this is before Peru. I come back. I'm hoping I'm, I learned some things there. I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm cranking on it. I'm praying about it. I'm talking to the other missionary there. I'm, I'm cranking on this thing. I'm trying to figure out what's going on with me. Why is it taking me so much effort? Why is this so hard? And in, in my, you know, in my cranking around and trying to wrench on this thing, I put the tool down and I'm still working on it. And then I reached over here and I grabbed another tool and I started and it's like, oh man, this is coming together so smooth. What the heck happened? What the heck happened was I started studying Romans and all of a sudden I realized I picked up a different wrench. It's the wrench of the gospel. I was using my flesh, I had gotten stuck somehow on how I was performing, what you guys were thinking. Was I doing it in time? You know, was I, was I putting the points together? And I'm re- I had good intentions. I was really working hard. I wanted to do good for you and for me. I like that. I like looking good in front of people. It's what it, it's, it's the, it's the good with the bad. True. But I have a sincere heart to deliver God's truth and it's not working. And somehow I put that thing down by accident and I picked up the gospel of Christ and I didn't see it into, until it was hindsight. It's a proof. You with me? Sometimes we're wrenching and we're working. We don't need self-improvement projects, church. We need to focus on the fact that I have sinned against God. I deserve his great wrath. He has saved me by the death of his son. And I need to focus on the glory of that and how that humbles me and brings me life. And our life changes. So recall the benefits of just believing what God has said. That's what changes us. And make no mistake, there's work in believing. But it's not the work of the law. And lastly, the application for us is apply the gospel to your relationships. Let me say this to you too. You will find it impossible to apply the gospel to people if you have not truly received the gospel yourself. If you don't know grace, there's no way you can give it. And let me say this to you. If you've really struggled with this, your inability to apply grace to relationships could be the most glorious revelation of this sermon series. Because you might have just gone your whole life thinking you're a believer. And because you can't apply grace, you haven't received it and you really don't know Christ. You're only a self-righteous religious person who needs to understand how you have earned God's wrath and he has completely freed you from it. And the glorious reality of his grace. He He who has sinned much, loves much. And if you are applying the law to people, so rather than applying the gospel to your relationships, if you're applying the law to people, here's three characteristics that that will be fruits of applying to the law to relationships. One, the relationship gets miserable. It just gets to be really hard. Two, 
you get prideful and you have a serious sense of spiritual blindness, which is really dangerous because you become a person who can't change because you can only see your own righteousness. And the third thing is you have a tremendous amount of disappointment and resentment in the relationship. If you're wrenching on a relationship with the law, you can expect it's miserable, I don't see my own sin, and I'm disappointed and I struggle with resentment. Apply the gospel to your relationship. Here's how. Speak the same things to people, to your loved ones, that God says about them. Remind them of God's grace in failure. When they fail, don't pounce on it and bring more. Remind them of God's truth in discouragement. Don't, don't, don't tell them what else they could do. But remind them when they're discouraged what's true, what God says is true about them. Stir them up by way of encouragement. God has created people in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared uh, before the foundations of the earth that they should walk in them. Find out what they have been given and then help them to walk into in it by identifying it with them. Apply the gospel to our relationships, church. And parents, by the way, usually when we get to this application stuff, it's because it's growing out of my journal. These are things I need to do. Parents, apply the gospel to your parenting and discipline. Let me say this. The law is necessary to help your children see the need for the gospel. But it is insufficient to help them change. The law is necessary so your kids know what sin is. But they will not change by you continuing to bring the law to them. Rather, teach your children to love Believing God's promises. Give them the law. So that they know what sin is. But teach them. To love. God's truth. To love. His promises. Psalms 119. Says this. How can a young man. Or a young woman. Keep their way pure. By guarding it according to your word. Then if you go from 9 to 24. Listen to the way the psalmist thinks about God's word. Listen to the way he thinks about God's promises. Verse 10. With my whole heart, I will seek you. Verse 14. I delight in your testimonies as much as riches. I will delight in your statutes. Verse 16. Verse 18. There are wondrous things in your truth. Verse 20. I am consumed with longing for your truth. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Teach your children to love God's truth. Church, let's give God weight. Let's recall the benefits of the gospel 
And with great freedom, let us apply the realities of the gospel to our relationships far and near. Father, thank you for saving us, a people of wrath that have received the gift of your righteousness by simply believing you. And we start with belief, and we grow by belief, and we will finish in belief. Grow our ability to believe you. Make us like Jesus by believing your goodness. Thank you for all your great kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the deep insights that you give to our hearts. Thank you that you dissect us with your word and then give us the hope of character. We can't say enough to praise you. So receive a little bit of it in song and as we enjoy communion together and um, remind each other of truth. For your glory and our joy, because of Christ, all because of Christ, we say it's true and amen.